the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. There are times then when a believer's life is so bad, so sinful, that quite simply he is no longer fit to represent God on this earth. And so for God's own glory, he takes that person's life. Join us now for Grace to the Bay as we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ through sound expository teaching by our teacher, Dr. Roger Chen. Grace to the Bay is the radio outreach of Grace Church of the Bay Area located in San Mateo. If you are blessed by Dr. Chen's message and are looking for a church home, you're invited to come worship with them. Now, here is Dr. Chen. This morning we bring to a close our four-week sermon on the Lord's Supper. And we began this series on the Lord's Supper by looking at the way the Corinthians, 2,000 years ago, the believers at the Church of Corinth, were perverting this ordinance. They were approaching the sacred table as if it was a time to self-indulge, as if it was a private dinner party. The rich, selfishly ostracizing the poor, by not sharing the food that they brought and even gorging on food and drink to the point that some were getting drunk in church at communion. Though at some point during the meal communion was taken, their hearts were not right throughout the, the day. They were not focused on the Lord. They were not focused on the Lord's sacrifice. They were not focused on the Lord's people nor fellowship with them. We went on to see in verses 23 through 26 of 1 Corinthians 11, why the Lord's table is so significant. This was nothing new to most of you. The bread symbolizing his sacrifice for us. The blood symbolizing the new covenant. All of it, a proclamation of his death, as well as a looking forward to his glorious return. With both the perversion and the practice of the Lord's table under our belt, we could fully understand the reason for the warning that we saw in verses 27 through 29. Discipline, chastisement, punishment for the believer who takes the bread and cup in an unworthy manner. Namely, an unworthy manner, being to not think highly of what the elements represent. That is our Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. Part of this is reflected in not dealing with sin before partaking of the elements. Were we serious about the sobriety and severity and the wonders of what the elements in the Lord's table represent, that we would come cleansed, confessed, repented. And as we bring this study to a close this morning, we see the practical and very real ramifications among the Corinthians for their perversion of the supper, as well as some responses for us today, though we are in a different culture, same God, same communion, same sacrifice, same worship. So I invite you, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 
And we'll finish off this passage by looking at verses 30 through 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 30 through 34. Follow along as I read. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Last week, in looking at the warning, we saw three steps in preparing for communion. Verses 30 through 34 are a continuation of that thought, but focuses more on what we need to know in our preparing for communion. And so this morning, I want to give you four truths to recognize in preparing for communion. Four truths to recognize in preparing for communion also known as the Lord's Table or the Lord's Supper. The four truths to recognize in preparing for communion begin with, number one, the present example. The present example. That is the example of the Corinthians, what is happening presently in their church. The first truth to recognize in preparing for communion is reality of what God did to some of the Corinthians in their discipline. The discipline we talked about last week is very real. It has very real physical circumstances and ramifications. And verse 30 again says, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Although God's discipline takes many forms, here we see that it all impacted physical health. He begins with this phrase, For this reason, which connects us again back to the warning It clearly indicates that what he is about to say was a direct result of the Corinthians not approaching the Lord's Supper with reverence. In other words, they had taken the elements in an unworthy manner. They are thereby, as we saw last week, guilty of dishonoring the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Again, in light of last week's passage, they failed to examine themselves. Or if they did... They did nothing about the sin that was discovered. In verse 29, we saw that they drank judgment to themselves. This judgment for the believer is not condemnation. It is not eternal punishment. It is discipline, chastisement. It is to help us as believers in this life to learn and grow. What form did this take? He says, weakness, sickness, and some sleep. Weak is general weakness. It was that they became sickly. I want to remind you that this is a different time. There were no modern hospitals. There was no modern medicine. Having a fever could kill you. There was not even a simple fever reducer like Tylenol. And so to be, have general weakness or to be sickly was a very big deal. The second, he says, is sick. This would be actual illness. And sleep, the third one, is euphemism for physical death. Yes, God took the lives of some because they took of communion in an unworthy manner. This is the judgment spoken of in verse 29. 
A verdict has been pronounced against those who have not judged the body rightly and thus took of communion in an unworthy manner. It is a direct punishment from a loving father to a cherished child because of their wrongdoing, because of their sin. And this wasn't a one-off situation for them. He says, many are weak, sick, and a number sleep. Many means a sufficient number, a large amount. Probably not the majority, but enough. Now when we talk about the discipline of God, we understand that there are sins that sometimes have a direct negative consequence. In other words, if this a result occurred because of your sin, not many people would say, oh, that's discipline from God. That just, that just happens. That happens to people who do those things, from broken relationships to sexually transmitted diseases to loss of income and even death. Drunk driving, anger at the workplace has consequences sometimes. But what we're talking about here is not just coincidental. It's not even a natural or even a logical consequence in the realm of this world. Specifically, it's not that those in Corinth, uh, see, you, you ate too much and you got sick to your stomach. Again, no modern medicine, even over-the-counter stuff like modium or Pepto back there. So you eat too much, it could have some pretty serious ramifications, especially consider the hygiene of food back then. That's not what this is talking about. It isn't that some of the rich got drunk and got in an accident on the way home, fell and hit their head on a rock or drove their chariot off the road and died. This is a punishment directly from the Lord for their sin. It is holy judgment. Perhaps it did take the form of a, an accident on their way home or sickness from the food. But you understand it was directly from God. It wasn't God sitting back and saying, see, natural consequence. No, it was God saying, I am going to do this to teach my children to not do this again, to keep them from committing the sinful act once again. We understand this. We also understand that for the believer, again, this is not eternal damnation. It is chastisement. It is discipline. But it is still a form of holy judgment. I want to give you two points of clarification. First is that we understand that when we discipline in our homes, it is to teach the child. I understand that we often, or I should say sometimes, hopefully rarely, discipline because we're angry, because we had a bad day. But generally, when discipline is done biblically, it is to keep the child from committing that wrong again or to teach them from doing something that will harm themselves. The basic premise is simple. They learn that certain behaviors incur some sort of pain inflicted by the parent with the goal of them ending the behavior before they experience the inevitable painful consequences of their sin either from God or society. And this is what God does here with sickness. We want to make sure they don't do it again because if I were to discipline my child because he keeps reaching up to the flames on the stove, it is because I don't want him to experience the even greater pain of burning his fingers. 
or the greater pain later on of being arrested for a crime. We discipline our children so they listen to authorities. They listen to adults so that bad things will not happen later in school, later with government officials. And this is what God is doing. There is a difference, of course, that he is the ultimate authority. And so he teaches us to be Christ-like. He teaches us to avoid his own wrath later on, which we'll see later in the passage. There's a second point of clarification I want to make here, which is about death. How does one learn to not make a mistake again if they're dead? Well, we have to look at the big picture to understand this. The point of discipline is for us to learn, yes, to be sure, the death of some will teach those who remain. If we understand that God disciplined some in our church by taking their lives, I would assure you the rest of us would wake up a little bit. But what about the one whose life was taken? To understand this, we must remember the ultimate goal of all instruction through discipline, which is God's glory. Not just change in behavior, not just protecting the child, not just so you can obey as a parent, but for God's glory. Because everything's for God's glory in the Christian's life. There are times then when a believer's life is so bad, so sinful, that quite simply he is no longer fit to represent God on this earth. And so for God's own glory, he takes that person's life. Remember, these are believers. So by virtue of Christ's work, they are fit for heaven. But because of their own sin, they are not fit to be an ambassador on earth any longer. This is not unheard of in the New Testament. A powerful example is given to us right at the beginning of the early church and the New Covenant in two individuals you're very familiar with, Ananias and Sapphira. All the believers were to sell all of their belongings to give to the church. And God struck them down because they held back money and then they lied about it both individually Lying separately, not they weren't together when they lied to the apostles. They were supposed to give it to the church and they didn't. They lied about it. And in Acts 5, 1 through 11, God struck them down immediately, clearly disciplined from the Lord, clearly a lesson for the church. Speaking of repentance or the lack thereof, there's another point of clarification I want to make that addresses the question, well, why can unbelievers do what Christians are disciplined for? Because their punishment is coming and it is eternal. And also, they don't represent Christ on earth. And they are therefore not subject to the same expectations. They are not expected to be salt and light. When I was living as an American expatriate in Europe, I was not held to the same expectations of another American expat who was the ambassador because he was held to an accountability as he represented the United States of America as well as the president of the USA. So I was not held to the same expectations. And so you understand that as ambassadors of Christ, we are held to a higher standard as we represent and present him on this earth. As your friend... I want to tell you that God won't do this today. I want to tell you that God wouldn't take your life for unrepentant sin. 
but I can't tell you that because it's not in the scriptures. Perhaps I would have some sort of fact or theology to lean on if this happened in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, whereas we are in the New Covenant. But the Corinthians and Ananias and Sapphira were in the church, the New Covenant, the church age. So if you were to ask me out of fear, would he really do this today? Though I would like to tell you, no, I can't say that. I can't tell you he will, but I definitely can't tell you he won't. This is new covenant discipline for the believer. So theologically, doctrinally, biblically, all we can say is if it happened then, it can very well happen today. You say, are you trying to scare us? I don't need to, do I? I don't think I need to. Because God is one to be feared. And so, the first truth to recognize in preparing for communion is the present example of what is happening to the Corinthians. Quite simply, that is, discipline is real. A second truth to recognize in preparing for communion is the pardoning examination. Verse 31, But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. The pardoning examination. We talked about this in depth last week when we looked at self-examination as a crucial step in preparing for communion back in verse 28. Here Paul changes his emphasis. He says that if they had performed the self-examination, then they would not have received the judgment. They would not have been judged. They would not have experienced the discipline. In other words, all the weakness, all the sickness and death mentioned in verse 30 would not have occurred if those individuals had judged themselves properly, they would have been preserved. And what that means for the Corinthians going forward and for us today is a simple aspect of discipline in any form, whether in your home, whether by a police officer, whether by God, avoid the sin and you won't receive the discipline. The beauty of this lies in the fact that God is holy and righteous. We do not receive discipline based on a whim or his anger over someone else or because he's grumpy because he didn't get enough sleep or had a bad day at work or long commute. He is holy. He is omniscient. He knows all things. If you or I receive discipline from the Lord, you know it's out of love. It's, you know it's because He wants us to do better, to excel still more. He doesn't need to pull you over and figure out if you are doing something wrong by giving you a sobriety test or checking if your odometer or speedometer is working. He knows. He's not guessing. He doesn't need to put the cuffs on book you into the police station, go through a long legal process only to find out tens of thousands of dollars later and months later that you actually were innocent. No, he knows instantly. He is a great judge. He knows. He judges based on holiness and righteousness based on his word. And when we need discipline, when we truly need it, when we deserve it, we know that we will receive it. And when we don't do anything to warrant discipline, then there's no chance of receiving the discipline. Some of us have experienced this with our parents. At first, it was right or wrong, but then we didn't know. You, some of you were disciplined just because dad had a bad day. 
mom and dad had an argument and she's not through with dad and so she goes after you. It has nothing to do with right or wrong. And so there are many people who grow up in a state of confusion. It isn't right or wrong. It's, okay, look, how hard did he pull into the driveway and slam on the brakes? Look at his face when he comes home from work. Does he throw down his briefcase or does he greet us? Not with God. Never with God. He is holy and righteous and good. He is fair. When a finite human is in charge, be it a parent, a boss, a government official, you can't always be sure. But with God, you can be. And he says we need to judge ourselves. To judge oneself rightly or truly means to recognize what our calling is in terms of behavior according to the Scriptures. Are you obeying? Our obligations as Christians always stem from our status as children. Children of God. It all flows out of that. We are those who are distinct as those who have died to self and now alive in Christ, freed from the bondage of sin, and regenerated into a new creation. The saved, the elect, the chosen, the children of God. And with that status comes a subsequent lifestyle and commitment, perceiving and honoring that what this judging or examination entails. Our sin, our need for holiness, the sacrifice of Christ. And you might have noticed that the way to avoid the judgment by judging ourselves rightly goes hand in hand with the two points of self-examination from last week. First, you need to see if you're truly saved. And then if you are, you need to see if you are in sin. Recognize your salvation, then deal with your sin. Because in recognizing your salvation, you must also recognize how you must live in light of the fact that you are saved. The Bible is very clear about this. The Bible is so clear about the importance of works because of your faith that some of the reformers were confused and wanted to take out books of the Bible because there's such an emphasis on works. But we understand what God is saying is not earning your salvation, but because of your faith, there must be works. The question, show me your works and I'll tell you about your faith because there's got to be fruit, real fruit. And that's what we're talking about here. Recognize your salvation and then make sure that there's good fruit. More to the point, when you do these things, then you will not come to the Lord's table unworthily and thus in taking the elements, you avoid judgment, discipline. It's not that you have to be perfect or sinless. That is impossible, this side of heaven. But to confess your sin, to deal with your sin, to receive the forgiveness, the pardon from God who is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we confess them. 1 John 1.9. I do want to point out also the we that Paul uses here. He is not ex- exempt even though he's an apostle, a church planter, a pastor, a church leader, a pillar of the church. He too must practice careful discernment of his own spiritual condition, how much more you and I. So the second truth to recognize in preparing for communion is the pardoning examination. 
There is a third, and that is the protecting experience. The protecting experience. Look again at verse 32. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Paul continues by explaining why we are disciplined. He connects the concept of judging with that of discipline. We've seen this all along, but here is where he uses the two terms, one to explain the other. Our judgment is discipline. And we've seen that the word judge does not refer to eternal condemnation here. Basically means a decision based on an act, the act being your sin. For the believer, the decision is discipline rather than eternal condemnation. Here's a helpful way to look at it. In an American court of law, there is a judgment at the end of any trial or case. And the judgment can involve different levels of punishment. There are punishments that the judge may lay on you to teach you a lesson. Sometimes we call it simply a slap on the wrist. Maybe it's a fine. A fine that's not easy to pay. Maybe it hurts your pocketbook a little bit. So you will learn your lesson. But then you leave the courtroom, you get in your car, and you exist as you always existed, hopefully having learned your lesson to pay your parking tickets, not to speed, or whatever it may be. Or he can lay down a life sentence or capital punishment to indicate that your punishment is permanent with no continuation of life as you know it. One is discipline, slap on the wrist, you go free, learn your lesson. The other is condemnation, your life is over. As believers, ours is discipline. This has been Grace to the Bay with Dr. Roger Chen. For the next part in this series, join us next week at this same time. Grace to the Bay is the radio ministry of Grace Church of the Bay Area, practicing and proclaiming the purity of biblical truth. You are invited to join them for worship services in San Mateo, Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit gracebayarea.org for service times, directions, live-streamed services, listen to archived sermons, or to make a tax-deductible donation to help keep Grace to the Bay on the air so that we can continue to share Pastor Roger's teaching with you each week. Again, that's gracebayarea.org. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.